Everybody, welcome back to the Long Lost Heroes podcast. I am one of your co-hosts, Frank, here as always with AJ. How are you? I'm very well, man. How are you? Glad to be back. Yeah, I'm doing great. <laughs> uh, this lovely Wednesday afternoon. Um, it's nice. The humidity is down. Yeah, it, it kind of the, the heat cut finally. We don't have a special guest today, everyone, but you know, we hope that it's just us. You, you hope you can just enjoy the two of us for once. Back to normal times. Back yeah. to the old ways. This uh, is the way. This is the way. We're not talking about the Mandalorian, although there's always fun things in the Star Wars universe to talk about. But uh, we are talking The Spy Who Loved Me, the third Roger Moore film. Uh, came out in 1977. And uh, I watched this last night. Uh, AJ, when did you watch it? I watched it over the weekend on Sunday with Shayna. And we used it as like our, you know, two o'clock afternoon movie. <laughs> and we both loved it. Uh, you know, I think it was a fun watch for both me and her. And it, uh, you know, it definitely seems to be regarded by most as the best in the Roger Moore series. Interesting. So th- okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, we, we really enjoyed it as well. Um, I was pleasantly surprised. Again, I... Obviously, I know the name of the movie, but I didn't really know much. Although, as I was watching it, I was like, I've definitely caught parts of this on TV. Like, I don't oh, think- I had never ever seen this one. I not even not even a part or knew any context of it. I didn't know anything about the plot, but there were distinct scenes. I was like, yep, I've watched this, but it wasn't. Uh, yeah, I never sat down and put put it on or anything like that. But I'm glad we watched it. I think uh, it's definitely. It's interesting to see how they've like differentiated each of the movies for him, right? Like they're all very distinctly sure. different. <laughs> no, that's true. And they do give, you know, one of the things that I really like about Roger Moore as I'm, I'm we're getting to watch him is how, you know, different he can be and how he can really uh play in so many different kinds of Bond movies that he's in and kind of fit into the role at every turn and still be funny about it. And I like his, I like his take. And I feel like they, uh, you know, in this movie, he's like enjoying it. He's having a good time, you know? Yeah. And it, it, I don't know. This is, this is a special one. This is a special movie. Yeah. And, um, I think, he is definitely having a good time. And it's interesting because like you have little bits of like, we know this is the continuity like that back this at this time, I feel like it wasn't too far fetched to assume the James Bond from Dr. No to, to here is the same guy, even though it's a different actor, because like not a whole lot has changed. Like obviously you jump to like the two thousands and 2010s. It's like the technology is so much better that like it is hard to believe but like here you feel like it's him and he's been through some shit so uh for him to be so quippy i mean he's really quippy in this one like he's got a lot of one-liners this one also has like the most 70s austin powersy kind of music yes where you have the wah wah kind of sound throughout the film it's it's disco and, it's like the yeah. era of disco and <laughs> they went all in on it and i kind of loved it <laughs> I also like that it's a kind of a big gap between uh, Man with the Golden Gun and this movie. Uh, Roger Moore made four movies in between this. Um, Holy shit. Yeah. And he, 
you know, he has a family. He, he in some of the interviews on the DVD, you know, he's like, hey, I have three kids. I have a wife. Like I go home when I'm home. My kids are like, when are you going to get back to work? We like what we're doing here, mm-hmm. <laughs> you yeah. know? And then he wants to go back to shooting and making money. Yeah. Well, and so I, I don't think this is anything to say that's a spoiler, but like, yeah, 1977, the, the credits roll and it's it like, well, like we mentioned last week, um, it says James Bond will return in For Your Eyes Only, which, as we know, because this is history, <laughs> was not the next film. Um, 1977 is also when Star Wars came out. And so I think it's super interesting and really kind of awesome that they they pivoted really fast and said, well, wait, let's not make For Your Eyes Only. Maybe they were in pr- like pre-production or something of it. I have no idea. But they made Moonraker instead, which is you know, definitely a space movie and uh, is trying to scratch that itch for, for the fans. Um, do you know anything about the behind the scenes or do you think maybe we'll get there once we watch Moonraker? So I know a little, I know a lot about the behind the scenes for this movie. The next movie, I don't know as much and I'm sure that we'll get there when we get to watch Moonraker. What I will say in this time is that there were a lot of pieces of media that came out because of Star Wars. Yes. Okay. So, like, you know, we can think about kind of the influence of Star Wars across, you know, film and pop culture, like, is is humongous, you know? And it's very varied, too, you know what I mean? There, It's not just one thing. Like, you could say that, you know, Alien, you know, Ridley Scott's, you know, movie for Fox that he did where, you know, they're looking at Aliens in this new light and taking it very seriously as opposed to the B-movie features of the of the time like was really a big shift like definitely star wars inspired there but also like mork from orc like is famously because the producer of happy days is like the kid had seen star wars he's like let's put a fucking alien in happy days and see what happens you know and (laughs) it really did shake up a lot of you know what we know uh today and i think it'll definitely shake bond up a little bit. I also think that there was probably some people who worked on Star Wars in London who also then were working on the Bond movies. And that would be cool to see maybe if that's in the DVDs at all, if they are like, well, we worked on this other thing and we wanted to do something that was more along the lines of that because we had become more experienced in that. Yeah. Um, so that'll be interesting to see. Uh, I have definitely seen Moonraker a couple of times. Uh, but I had never seen The Spy Who Loved Me, and this movie, I think, has some of the most interesting trivia. It's it's actually really kind of interesting. So okay. get a load of this. So this is this is the first movie where Broccoli, Cubby Broccoli, uh, one of the two producers of the James Bond franchise as we know it, um, is starting to produce these movies on his own. The reason was uh, Saltzman um, did some more... You know, he did business dealings where he invested more of his complete money and he got really in over his head with Technicolor and a couple of like, I think an airline that may have had a problem and some food industry, some kind of food product. Okay. And he couldn't he couldn't do it. And he like lost all of his money and he owed the Swiss like tons of stuff. So they were foreclosing on him. And as they're foreclosing on him, you know, he's like, OK, I really uh you know, need to work, you know, on bond to kind of, you know, make, you know, to make money so I can be, you know, broke. <laughs> I have to just, you know, try to get this done. And uh, Broccoli said no. 
and is mm. like, you know, we can't do this anymore. Like you don't have any more money. The movies are based on debt. Like it can't, it's not going to work. So it they sounds kind like of, Saltzman is almost a Bond villain in and of himself. <laughs> yeah. And like, he was, he was like the mean guy on set. He, you know, he was much more, you know, financially sound, I guess in the beginning when they were making the films, but I think maybe his ego got to him and he, you know, was doing more of these shady business deals and, you know, ultimately, uh, changed you know the project that they were working on together to be a new project and went with a whole new script one of the writers who had written a, a different script claimed that he, this had been uh you know lifted from the, them lifted from him by the by the studio there's like a ton of intrigue ultimately there is a Fleming book called The Spy Who Loved Me, but this movie has almost nothing to do with it, uh, with the exception of an uh, a element and a henchman at the time was called horror, and we will see later be repurposed as one of the major contributions of this movie to the James Bond franchise. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, they, you know, there's a big gap between these movies. Roger Moore makes a couple of the films. He comes back. And he's very cool with the press. The press are all asking him, you know, are you like James Bond? He's like, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, and he, the, the, the idea that Broccoli had had and wanted to um, execute was to really bring the fantastical element of the Bond films more to a central aspect of the feature, right? And yeah. they wanted to kind of double down on the fantasy element by... Uh, you know, enriching that into the plot and let, let not so much as, you know, just the idea of the male fantasy of being, you know, James Bond licensed to kill womanizing crazy man. Um, yeah. So they really played into that. Um, they went to Tokyo. That's where that, the cool Atlantis shots are done. Okay. Um, and yeah, it's a very cool, um, you know, story. They make the movie super quick. Uh, in 1976 it comes out in 1977 um and then star wars yes i mean i think this uh i think it makes a lot of sense like i do feel like there are a ton of action set pieces but instead of just being like all right we're gonna do this thing some of it is actually integral to the the plot and i do feel like this will at least resonate later like it feels more like maybe a Pierce Brosnan era film where like the, the big things are happening, but like it, it's also moving some elements of the plot forward. Not to say that this movie has a lot of plot because <laughs> it is a little bit light. Um, but like, again, yeah, but that, that it, helps that this movie fun. really is really light. Like, yeah. and, and it makes it, this movie kind of like turns on a dime and it it, I, I like, I like this. So I think to talk more about, this movie we're gonna we're gonna have to talk about spoilers things you may be surprised about seeing so if you have any surprises for this 30 year old movie i mean please be my guest and turn it off thank you for listening for 10 minutes go like and rate the podcast all right so spoilers um jaws is in this movie <laughs> and he's finally there and it this is his first appearance it's one of two appearances it's definitely a super memorable one. He's in the entire movie. It's Frank, excellent. What did you think oh of Jaws? Oh my god! I mean, I knew he was coming. I knew he was in two, um, and so when I was speaking before about one of the films I'd seen or part of it uh, of this movie I'd seen, 
I distinctly remember the entire fight sequence on the train um, and the subsequent like plot like after that for maybe 15 minutes. So I must have like flipped it on and was like, oh, this is awesome. Caught a really good moment and the commercial came. So I probably dipped out. Um, he's so epic. Um, it, it really Richard Kiley. He, he, he elevates this movie because like. We've been kind of talking for a few here how the physical antagonist isn't really a big part, and here they like double down. And like, actually, there's the other guy too, like Sandor. Um, yeah, you have two like actual physical threats for him to fight, and it it really upped the stakes. Um, and I think they again will take this template and use it again moving forward. Like, but like Jaws is so menacing, and he's huge. <laughs> <laughs> he is huge. So he got the call. He comes in, and yeah, they designed his teeth so that they could, you know, they could work. Um, but he can only really wear them for like thirty-five seconds at a time. Yeah, and he would get, you know, he couldn't really breathe. Um, and yeah, he he was a good sport, man. He he really, you know, I think he adds a big element of threat to Bond, and it, it's nice to see him have to square off against somebody you know, so menacing and, and scary, but also so funny. And I think that the way that they shoot, especially the Karnak scene, I think it starts out very intriguing and then it ends light enough, but, you know, also cool enough for him to come back. And yeah, I, I really appreciate his presence in this movie. Yeah. And I think that, you know, his inclusion, um, you know, it, it's such, it, I mean, it's, talk about great characters in the Bond video game. I mean, right. he's the guy. Yeah, he, yeah they, they put him in Goldeneye, and he was there a ton. Um, but, like, I was <laughs> looking at the end as the credits are rolling, and, you know, it's zooming out, and you see the boats and everything. I'm like, do I see Jaws swimming still? <laughs> like, I thought that was hilarious. Like, But I do love that he gets away, and, um, you know, I, I don't think I've seen Moonraker, but uh, if maybe I'll remember bits of it where he's there as well, because um, I'm excited for him to return. I think he's a really cool character. Um, so yeah, we got to do Go the ahead. plot game. Ooh. Okay. Um, what's this? Stromberg. Stromberg, motherfucker. All right, Stromberg is uh, he's. <laughs> He's one of the original eco-terrorists, and he is coordinating to uh, capture nuclear submarines in order to create a nuclear holocaust on the Earth and ensure his survival in his underwater colonies and potentially profit off of other people trying to get in on the underwater lifestyle. That's pretty much it. I think, like, it is kind of a – it's really a light plot, but it's kind of cool in that you can see it's very much Cold War era. Like, he's this guy that is pitting uh, the U.S. against the USSR. Like, he wants to blow up Moscow and uh, New York. And as we would guess that if that actually happened, there would be this huge nuclear war 
there would be nothing left. And for whatever reason, he believes that he would be able to survive underwater. <laughs> yeah. The audacity on that level is like why he's like kind of a sympathetic character, because maybe he just doesn't realize that it's not going to work out if he moves down there. <laughs> but I also want to say like, um, the, the cool ship in this movie, like the big tanker that hauls everything in. Oh yeah. Like that's a totally sweet idea, but I think that they also kind of do this in you only live twice. Okay. Um, which is also directed by the same guy who directed this movie. Um, which is crazy. Uh, and yeah, the, the, uh, Lewis Gilbert, he also directed you only live twice, 10 years apart. Um, wow. Yeah. I don't know. I, I like the plot of this movie because I feel like, we're back to people talking about world domination. I think we had taken a break from really the world at large being at threat to like really work on these kind of smaller threats for bond in the last two movies to kind of ground him in his character. And like, again, everything is a, you know, a redirect. So this one, you know, kind of do, playing into those kind of plots of world domination and, you know, the threat of global annihilation, like it, it definitely amps up the stakes like considerably. And it brings us back to, kind of an older you know time period i can remember from you know these connery days of like building towards an actual like greater threat than just you know people wanting to kill bond which we saw in the last movie right well and Um, and also the thing that i like about it is that it's another one of those plots that's like just because you kill the bad guy or just because you kill a henchman doesn't mean they're out of it yet right right it's one of those movies that has like a constant ticking clock like he has to stop the the nuclear threat then they have to escape and then you know uh there's still jaws to fight like like that to me like those stakes were always kind of present and it like it drove the movie forward to the end even when stromberg was like already taken out because ultimately i like the the guy that portrayed stromberg but i don't think he's like he doesn't carry the movie in any way it's just like he's absent for a huge part of it too and he's like you don't really feel him pulling the strings no you really don't and you kind of you know it's so light that you just kind of skip over that part yeah um okay uh you know the i do like the other plot though i think the the b plot of this movie that you know the soviets and the british are working together to stop this guy is a pretty strong lead and definitely by giving the female lead you know character a lot more advocacy in this movie they've really amped up kind of uh i think the memorability and like the and the you know your relatability to the bond character like you know we've all done the things we don't had we didn't want to do for our jobs you know what i mean so like bond like he didn't know this guy you know what i mean so in the movie uh when bond is teamed up with his equivalent agents you know triple x yeah uh you know just a black widow ripoff straight out of the comic book um (laughs) she uh you know um you know they get along at first until she realizes that he killed and is responsible for you know her other agent who was a lover of hers uh, it's not clear if they were current lovers or previous lovers, um, but I thought that you know, he was in the the opening sequence with with her. I'm pretty sure he was. Like, they both were 
like so he he was in bed with her she gets the call to go do her job and then you see bond like sleeping with that that woman at the top of the the mountain and so i think it's the guy with the very hairy chest that like kind of resembles a bondish character even though he's russian and he's and we do we ever get contact with him in the skiing scene well that that's the thing that's implied like we we don't see his face exactly but i think bond assumes he kills him and that's like that conversation that they have in like the middle of the movie because he's like i'm getting shot at by a bunch of guys on skis and i'm fighting for my life so i shannon i thought it was a different guy no i'm pretty sure it was him um but yeah like they it it doesn't seem important until it is kind of important you know and they maybe could have laid a little bit more evidence there uh for it to be a little bit clearer um but ultimately, it doesn't matter if they, you know, they make up. He saves her. She saves him a couple times along the way. <laughs> they fall in love. They fall out of love. It's a will they wouldn't they throughout the whole thing. Um, but so one thing I didn't realize. So she is um, the wife of Ringo Starr. Do you know that? Nuh-uh. Yeah. That's crazy. That's crazy, right? Um and uh that's crazy i liked her a lot i think um she is definitely a course correction from some of the 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 past movies um and like she i don't know she she does a a a good job i I do think they're they could have given her a little bit more uh to do at times instead of just like having her you know low cut cleavage showing and just being worried um it's like if you're an agent major you could probably do a little bit more to you know to help i don't know um but i do like her a good amount and then there are some other cool uh bond girls in this that are you know have their brief periods of time through the film but aren't as substantial as understatement her. yes yeah. they are quite brief um yeah you know you're in this movie i think they're try- they're trying to change Roger Moore. They're trying to make him more evolved, you know. And I think that they definitely do the best job, probably since on Her Majesty's Secret Service, of like selling the potential of like a love story here. Yep. And I'm definitely down for that in a big way. Um, what I didn't really love about this movie, Stromberg, um, was the villain but also what he does at the very beginning to the jews <laughs> it really bugged me uh and it was just like you know it sucks because you think everything is you know not offensive until it's you you know what i mean like you see everything and you deal with it oh okay it's fine and then it's like there's these two clear jews here that made this thing for him he totally threatens him like they're gonna die he ends up killing this girl only to kill them you know moments later by setting them on fire um, I, I don't oh, know, yeah. man. Blowing up their helicopter, right? <laughs> he blew up their plane. Um, <laughs> I don't know, man. I, it That part really bugged me. And then from the rest of the movie, I was just kind of like, okay, like whatever this guy's going to do, I'm, I, I don't, I'm going to, I'm not going to like him. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. You know, and he, uh, I, I think that, you know, his idea of living underwater um, is so stupid. That's a stupid idea. Um, nobody is living underwater. Yeah. It's just not how it works. And, you it's know, not he our calls his thing Atlantis and it's like, but like, I don't know. I, I would have liked to have gone like another level 
um, and like shown like an underground city or something, but they, they don't do that. Yeah. They, just, like, they don't do that, that, but that would cost money. You know what I mean? <laughs> so it's like they, they're doing what they can do. And I think what they do well is the stunts in this movie. You know, yeah. this, I think this is one of the first times you see a jet ski. Um, the, uh, fucking, the fucking car. Oh my God. The mother fucking Lotus. This is, that, this is why this movie I think is legendary. The Lotus is so epic. Um, it looks so cool. It does so much. Um, I, I love the scene. I really got to say that you can't, I, I never put it past these people to really surprise me and blow me away mm. really because you know, I'm like in the last episode I was talking about how there hasn't been a Q scene for a while. And we yep. described a Q scene as, you know, it bond comes in, it, you know, there's a joke, we get the weapons, there's another joke, we leave. Yep. That's it. Right. But in this scene, they, instead of doing it exactly in that fashion, we don't hear Q explaining the car to uh, bond because triple X is standing right there. Right. So they're not going to give away Russian intelligence to British intelligence to the Russians about what this car can totally do. And you end up having what I think is a really memorable, really funny scene. And then if you know from bond lore that the real great feature of this car is that it will go underwater and can shoot out black octopus like ink and stop its villains. Uh, this is one of easily the most memorable, you know, bond vehicles of all oh, time. It's and it's definitely, again, a redirect in saying that there was not a big Bond car in the last movie. Here's a fucking Bond car. Everyone's going to remember forever. Yes. And it, 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 it just like so slick, so cool. And I really love the transformation. You know, it, it goes under the water and you see you know, like the hatches close. You see the wheels come up like it, the, the effect is just excellent. Um, and it, it is a, it is a pretty awesome effect. And, you know, I totally believe them being in this like car submarine thing. Um, and then you have like the reveal on the other end when they, they come out of the water and everyone's like in disbelief that what? this car is driving out of the water. Like so, so funny. Um, I also do love though, that, uh, she reveals to him that like she had, uh, in, intelligence on it like from two years ago and <laughs> she knew how to work it so like yeah it, 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 it played well for the movie because we as an audience don't know like what Q's telling him and it gives us that like surprise later on and and uh for him for her to like be like oh i know anyway it doesn't matter he could have told me he could have that that was uh, a good way to play it uh, i'm there man and i <sighs> okay the you know the fact that they get to use this car to get to this villain's lair and that they are, um, you know, ultimately there are two layers, which is great. You always want to have two layers, uh, on board the big tanker ship. And then also at, you know, Atlantis itself. Yep. It does, it does really give everybody a lot to do. It all, the, the stakes I think are raised from the very beginning when they, you know, they get the first submarines, um, but once you get onto the super tanker with all of the guys on it, it definitely feels, you know, like we're back to super high stakes level bond and that the threat is there and, you know, we got to be careful and, and, you know, we're playing with world global stakes here, guys. Yeah. And I also really, really like bad dudes. that moment when he's on the tanker with, you know, the crew of the submarine and all the other hostages and he kind of like takes charge and is like. I don't know. It feels bigger than a Bond movie. He's like, he's the commander of this 
army. He's practically. totally commander bond at this moment. Yeah. Right. And like he pulls rank. I, I like that. Uh, I didn't really get the little maglev car oh. in the ship. That felt weird to me. It's like, is but, the ship that big that they need that for transportation? Okay. Yeah, that seemed a little bit <laughs> And also, like, they have this huge, like, uh, opening where they can let the submarines in and out of, but, like, they have to shoot the, 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 the maglev boat thing from, like, 30 feet up into the, the water. I'm like, how did that just not, like... Yeah, flip over was, and sink that was wackadoodles <laughs> uh the the submarines i thought were really cool i thought it was cool and fun to be aboard the submarines yep uh i also liked uh that this movie really is very f- quick on its feet and like it doesn't really hang around we're not wasting time we're not building tension we're not walking around taking in scenery for no reason like every point of action in this movie you're moving to the next plot next point and I think that that it this, that makes this movie really hold up very nicely. Um, the one thing we have yet to talk about the opening sequence, yeah, um, which I think will bring us right into our rating section. But I do want to say that I think this opening sequence is pretty fucking awesome. They actually saw this stunt being done by a guy who had done it in California, and they were like, "All right, man, can you do this again?" And he's like, yeah, I could probably do it. So they did a practice shot in California and they like, all right, spell it out for the people. Cause I, I know what you're saying, but so you're talking specifically about the ski jump at the very end of the opening sequence, right? I, I am, I'm sorry. So at the end of this opening sequence, Bond is seen jumping from a cliff and opening a parachute. This had never been done on film. Okay. So they are like, all right, we'll set it up. They do a practice shot. They show the producers. The producers are like, fuck yeah, go do it. Go spend the money. Go make it real. Yep. They go. They set up five cameras. Three of the cameras fail. Whoa. Only one camera got the whole thing. And then the best joke, I think, and what really, I think, makes this movie kind of funny and, and cool still is when the parachute opens up and it gets the Union Jack on it and, you know, my understanding is that when that would open up, people in the audiences would go crazy. Goes right into the you know the credit sequence. Yeah, it, it's epic, man. It's, and like I de- it's it and it goes so well for the skiing. I just wanted to say that that the skiing can be so boring in these movies, and this makes the skiing awesome again. Yeah, it, like it was a nice exclamation point. I think um, like the movie, it like the the opening sequence kind of like really builds and builds and builds. Like it's quiet at first. We see some stuff with. With the missing tankers, we we meet, we see Bond, we see Triple X, then they this big ski chase where he has like some really epic gadgets too, like using the ski poles as like a, a like a gun, harpoon sort of thing. Um, he it then isn't there some sort of like snowmobile ish kind of thing as well, or am I misremembering? I don't know. I I think that this this ski chase like in comparison to on her majesty's secret service where there's like two like this is lean yeah. it moves fast it's there's really cool action it it definitely feels different from the last one and yeah th- to end with that jump is just like perfect um yeah so let's get into these ratings you guys obviously we like this movie um you can totally check it out right now on amazon prime uh and yeah uh Let's get into these ratings over here. Sure. So Frank, we both the just, opening sequence. We just talked about it. Um, I uh, I gave it a seven. I I thought it was really strong. Um, but 
like they're you know it's not daniel craig level like action stakes and and i think uh i liked it a lot what about you so i originally gave this a five but after learning about the behind the scenes and learning that it was all done in kind of like one take and that it was the first time i'm gonna bump my score up to a seven i think that this is is a really nice opening for the bond movie it is is integrated into the plot but it also kind of feels like its own fun standalone adventure yes uh a seven um plot would you give this one frank i give this a six um you know it is kind of light on plot but um i i forgive uh, the uh the details to the the things that are actually shown and i feel like the the way the movie moves uh it, it's got a good pace to it i don't really love the villains uh you know idea of of the war and the um, you know, living underwater, but, uh, yeah, the, the visuals are great. So six, I kind of, it's just fine. What about you? I'm going to go with a five. I think it's very, I think the plot itself like is very simple. So it allows like other parts of the movie to be really great. Um, I don't know if it holds up totally today. <laughs> you know, yeah. I think if you launched nuclear weapons, uh, against two submarines, people would know about it. <laughs> and sure. things would happen and it wouldn't be as kind of uh passe as this movie kind of plays it off as right yeah like the end the movie ends and no one's like worried that these two nukes just went off <laughs> well, there's also like they use like the stock footage of like the atom bombs they had done in the 50s so it, it like they're not even like trying to fictionalize it True. they're trying to play up you know the actual horror of the idea and well it's the just other not, weird not thing to me is like his idea that it, it would create like a nuclear war between Russia and the U.S. Like, but the Russians are working with the British and the and the U.S. Like, that's like a U.S. Navy, naval submarine. So, like, they would just tell the higher ups, be like, no, 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 he blew them up. It wasn't us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, New York and Moscow may be gone, but like, we're good. We're sorry. Um, yeah, it, it's it, it's just a little it's just a little shake a doodle at at the end of the day. Sure. Uh, okay, so the gadgets in the car. I mean, uh, a nine from me. I think the only thing that could have been, the the only thing I, I would have wished is just maybe a, you know some more weapons or something. It just felt like very vehicle based this movie, but uh, still cool. Yeah. Still one of the be most memorable ever and arguably, you know, the most memorable of the Roger Moore movies. I also gave it a nine. Uh, similar reason. I think the car is just so fantastic. It does so much. It's beautiful. Um, the There's a great cue scene there. You know, they, they a couple of jokes there. You, you see some of the things that he's working with. Um, and then I like I like the gadget that he uses to um, to look at the microfilm. I think like that. That was cool. You see him working with stuff. And then what I mentioned before, like on, on the skiing, like he's got some cool things to, to use there. And he like the whole thing when he disassembles the nuclear weapon and he like makes this new device, like he's manu maneuvering and doing a lot of little different things with gadgets in this movie. It's it's excellent. Indeed. Um, moving on to the Bond girl, Barbara Bach. Um yeah, she's she is quite beautiful. Yes, um, and she's definitely a, a physical um, presence, but I don't feel like she's given quite 
as much to do as she maybe could have been? What do you think? Yeah, you know, if this movie was made like 20 years later, she probably would have been like a 10, right? They would have given her more to do. I just think like course correcting from Live and Let Die, The Man with the Golden Gun, like the way that the the women were treated in those movies, like this is a, a good direction. I think having her be an agent and like a competent one, like she's way more competent than Mary Goodnight. Um, but oh, like, for sure. But like, yeah, she could have done, had more to do. Um, I think Naomi was kind of a cool villain threat. Um, yes. She, so like she was another bond girl. Um, but I do like, you know, the, that they were able to dispatch with her pretty easily. Um, so yeah, I mean, there was, there were a few other women throughout, like, that kind of died pretty fast or, or, or at least are brushed off pretty fast. Um, but I think as, as we're talking about, uh, uh, Anya is her name, right? Anya Amasova triple X. <laughs> she's, she's good. Um, eight as well. Okay. Um, the villain Stromberg, I'm going to give him a hard six. Uh, I think that he's underdeveloped. He's performed competently, but not, enthusiastically enough to be rememberable. I think his lair and his uh, henchmen are more interesting than he is. Six. Uh, We are in agreement again. (laughs) We're pretty much on the same page with this guy. Uh, I think he's he's cool, but I don't, you know, maybe if they had a different actor or I don't know if that would have made much of a difference, but um, yeah, I just... I didn't personally find him very threatening to Bond. Like, Bond takes him out so quickly, and it's just like, okay, that's that. But um, but then the physical antagonist. The best ever. Uh, yeah, so Jaws, Richard Kiley. Uh, also, Shandor, he was a pretty cool-looking villain. Um, yeah, 10. He's easily the mo- one of the most memorable henchmen of all time. Uh, he's played beautifully. He's so threatening and scary, but also hilarious. 10. Ten. 10, 10, 10. Um, he's just, I love that he uses his teeth to, to, to break things. I love that yes. he kills people by biting them. <laughs> like, it's just so gross, but also like so threatening. And like, I, I like that, you know, there there's a definite threat like when bond takes him out on the train he has to like electrocute him to to really stop him because otherwise he he's toast um so he's excellent uh what do you think about like a recurring henchman like because that kind of implies to me that like they know that the villains aren't as important anymore Mm. you know what i mean so they're like you know what if the if we can't make the if all the villains are going to be mustache twirling weirdos, right, and they never really are going to be super awesome, you know, should we be banking on kind of a comedic, threatening character that we can use again and again? Because I don't think Jaws has a ton to do with the plot of Moonraker, <laughs> right? You know, so like I'm sure that the idea is like a financial and like you know popular decision. Like he was a popular character, so they brought him back. Yeah. What do you think? Um, I, you know, it's hard because on the one hand, a recurring henchman to me would mean a recurring villain, like, and right. it's definitely and it's not, not. So like, 
I think it would be actually really cool, and I don't think it's the case here, but maybe in the future they could do this, like have a henchman be like important in one movie, survive, and then like become like an outright villain. I think that would be kind of cool. Um, I'm I'm there. More, I'll write that movie. More that sounds great. Development, right? Always good. Um, but yeah, I think if anything here, maybe it's more of like a side plot to the next movie where he's just out for revenge. Because if he's just like, I'm going to work for the next bad guy that's up against Bond. All right. <laughs> How did that happen? Okay. <laughs> just keep no swimming. No one knows. Okay. Bond performance. I'm, I'm going to go 10. I think this is one of the best ones uh, we've seen. I, I think Roger Moore has hit his stride. He has figured out that he wants to do more action. He wants to, you know, be a part of the Bond machine. And I think that he's definitely in full swing here. Um, and I, I think that that you see that in the, in the performance and in his movie that it, he's like, this is cool and I like this and I'm and we're dealing with crazy subjects, but we're not we're taking it you know as seriously as you want it. Choose your own level yeah. of seriousness. Ten. What I give think? him a nine. Um, I I think he's he's excellent in this movie. I keep saying excellent. I gotta come up with other <laughs> other words. Oh, there's there's so many other yeah, words. But though. he, um, I don't know. I guess I'm just kind of reserving the idea that maybe he hits it a little bit stronger. Like, I I what I really liked was like um, when he his like libido gets in his way and you know, he, <laughs> he portrays like bond trying to uh, win over triple X and then, you know, she totally double crosses him. And it's like, that's great. I love that. Um, but you know, could we have had like a little bit more of the, the swagger? Like he, you know, he's in a, in a tux a couple of times in this, but I, you don't have that same, like, you know, at a casino or a dinner party or something where he's playing it cool. I, I kind of, that's the main thing I feel like I was missing. I, I feel you. I, I get that. I get that. Sentiment. He's not being subtle no. in this movie at all, but he was awesome as no. a commander. That's not Roger. Moore's I think strong he's point. awesome as like taking charge and, and leading a bunch of people, which I don't think we see all that much. That was really awesome. Um, all right. Legacy continuity and relevancy. Um, once again, we are kind of on the same page. We both gave this a seven. Yeah, I think that's because the Lotus is so awesome. It's such a Bond clip to p include into any, you know, uh, highlight reel. Um, and that it, this movie it isn't, it, it isn't so, t it's, a, it's, a, it's a good movie. You could watch this movie now. Exactly. And, still and then also in terms of continuity, they refer to Bond being married before, and they set up Jaws as a recurring antagonist villain. Um, so we do feel the threads there. Um, and, uh, yeah, I do think it holds up. But, again, I it, I didn't give it higher marks because I, I don't feel like – I mean, you mentioned that this is a high-regarded movie, but I don't think I've known anything about it. So it's like it, it could have spoken a little bit louder, you know? Um, so moving on to special effects, just like outstanding work all around. Yeah. Out, yeah. This movie, they amped up the, the set pieces in a way that, you know, it's just heads and shoulders above what they did in 
the last movie. It's just, it, the the underwater city, the the lotus itself actually transforming before your eyes. Um, you know, the explosions in this movie are really awesome. The big set inside the submarine from Ken Adams, like it's just it's really great. Uh, John Glenn is one of the major ADs and stunt coordinators on this movie, and he's getting more and more involved yep. all the time as he's growing within the Bond company. Yeah. Uh, I, I and he regards this movie, I think, as the best one of the Roger yeah. Moore ones. It just too. was constantly visually appealing. Like the the opening sequence did like started off strong. You have a great car chase. There's a the, you know a motorcycle chases him. A, a, another car yeah no another car chases them and then a helicopter and all of it just like looks believable um and 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 like the locations are really cool too like we they're in cairo like th- that looks so awesome and um and like as a backdrop and to have a fight kind of within all those uh uh like the structures there was really cool and um i i don't think they could have done much better especially at the time and it, it, it doesn't feel like it like if if Star Wars came out in 1977 and this came out in 1977, like these effects have aged so well. Whereas like some of the things in Star Wars, like they were creating on the spot, <laughs> like you can feel the 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 thing the the gears grinding, you know. Oh oh, for sure. But uh, it also goes to the budget. Well, we could do oh, a whole yeah, episode about the that. budget well, of those we'll, movies are so different. Well, that, <laughs> right. So I think really for me, the song is is good but i i don't like the score in this movie and i don't like the uh-huh. 70s disco sound um i i think this is definitely one that is aged poorly hmm. and um i think yeah this is the main I, I, area I, where we're differing then <laughs> why do you uh, like this one how do you okay so so this is marvin hamlish who is one of the most prolific composers of all time he's an egot um and like the score i think actually while it, the reason why i didn't give it a 10 or for two reasons one the well the the song itself i think i i don't love it and it's not that memorable so that's why i gave it an 8 um and the other reason was because i do think some of those like hokey like there's no slide whistle but there's like almost some of the effects that are in the score, like accentuating some moments that are a little bit over the top and some of the, the disco stuff. But I mean, they use so much really great classical music. They have um, some other, I think it was like Arabian nights soundtrack uh, was in there too. I, I don't know. I think it highlighted the movie and accentuated like the plot and, and action in a really great way. I was expecting Marvin Hamlish to have like, more of an influence and like less to like use the cheese of these like great pieces. Like, yeah, I think like it really works in the first scene with the, with the shark when he plays air. I think that that's pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, but I don't think it works the rest of the movie. I think it's, Mm. it's like weird and kind of forced, but yeah, that's where we, that is where we differ my friend. Sure. Um, okay. So at the end of the day, I'm giving this movie a 77. You're giving this movie an 80. Yep. So I'm giving this movie like a C plus. You're giving this movie like a B minus. Yep. Uh, so yeah, I would say go see it. You know, I would say it's definitely E for effort and context. Like if you have been liking the Roger Moore movies so far, 
uh this one is highly enjoyable yeah. and it's a quick <laughs> um, watch and it moves great... pretty good like you know it's two hours but like the action kind of moves it along at a good pace doesn't really drag at any moments that i can remember um yeah highly recommend um and so at this point i'm really really excited to go on to moonraker um i think i don't think i've seen it so that's and it's one you know i love oh i love space and science fiction and it's like you haven't seen moonraker i don't think so i mean we'll see so you knew what the Moonraker laser was in 1997, but you never were like, you know, I got to find out where this comes from. You never figured well, it out. Well, I mean, I knew that it was from Moonraker, but I like But like it's not even the real laser that they use. <laughs> it's like a phony okay. knockoff. Yeah. Uh the laser I mean, Okay, we got to talk about we'll talk about some lasers yeah. in the next movie because they do not why they have lasers in the next movie is also a big point of contention. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like so, okay. Uh, Moonraker. Also, why are we raking the moon? Who needs? You don't need to rake it. If anything, you you use a big uh, what do you call it? A, a, a big blower, an air blower. You don't need. A, you don't. You need a leaf blower. You don't need to moon rake the moon. Okay. Uh, all right, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for tolerating my shitty Bond jokes. It's been really a great time to be with you together. Thank you, Frank, uh, for continuing our crest to watch all the Bond movies. We are. Moving right along, next week's episode, Moonraker, just in time for you to watch it on Amazon Prime. Uh, Given the plugs right now, uh, go find our podcast. We are on Spotify. We are on Apple. You can listen to us through Stitcher. You can find us on Google. Uh, If you're looking to find us on social media, at LLH Podcast, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Check out the website, www.longlostheroes.net. You could also check out uh, our email address if you wanted to message us and send anything, info at longlostheroes.net. I'm AJ. And I am Frank. Thank you very much. See you next week. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.